Hello, and welcome to The Aura, a podcast that takes you inside and outside the work of art in discussion with those who create, curate, write, think about, and enjoy contemporary art. My name is Cheryl Sim, and I am curator and managing director of the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art in Montreal. The work of Phil Collins manifests itself in film, photography, and media installations, yet the essence of his medium is engagement, intimacy, and collaboration. Since the late 1990s, the UK-born artist has been exploring how we participate in and understand culture through places and communities brought together through the camera's lens. As so aptly described on his gallery's artist page, his works have brought us into contact with disco-dancing Palestinians, fans of the Smiths across three continents, Kosovan Albanian refugees, the youth of Baghdad, anti-fascist skinheads in Malaysia, and teachers of Marxism-Leninism from the former German Democratic Republic. His works allow us to be critical of media, to ruminate on technology and its place in our lives, but also allow us to be at home with our vulnerability. Phil Collins was nominated for the prestigious Turner Prize in 2006, and he has had major solo exhibitions all over the world, including the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the MCA Chicago, San Francisco MoMA, and Tate Britain. His work is also in the collections of institutions such as the Guggenheim and MoMA in New York and the National Gallery of Canada. In October of 2017, he was in Montreal to set up his deeply moving piece, Free Photo Lab, that was part of Luff, the Foundation's 10-year anniversary exhibition that explored the concept of gift. Well, first of all, thank you so much for being part of the show and, and for you know, according us this kind of, I guess, direct and, uh, you know, intimate exchange that we can have. It's, uh, it's something, you know, really privileged and um, yeah, it's wonderful to have you here in Montreal. Well, the pleasure really is all mine, you know, yeah. Um, I thought it would be wonderful to talk about some of the preoccupations in your work because what I've noticed in over the years and really kind of seeing all of these different projects that you've done, quite a diverse array of, of projects, mm -hmm. but also having a really interesting glue mm -hmm. There's definitely a kind of critique of power dynamics in mass media. There's explorations of, of pop culture and how that moves around. People power as well. I mean, I think of the unfortunate thing between us and then your most recent project ceremony as, as projects where you harness, you know, the energy of masses of people, which makes us think of how you affect real social change and that people have that power. And then, of course, there is the question of collaboration and kind of this agreement, mm -hmm. this uh, deal between you as the artist and, and the subject that is so much a part of every work you do and that is so moving uh, for, for us. And um, one of the reasons why you're such a compelling artist for me and was really interesting to have a work of yours in, in this particular context. The glue that I was thinking of was about the trust mm -hmm. that you establish, compassion and empathy 
as well, which is elicited from the trust. So, you know, I've taken all that time now to unpack all your things, but <laughs> maybe, maybe you could tell me about some of, you know, how, how you see the preoccupations in your work. A lot of it comes back to where I went to college. So I went to college in Manchester in the late 80s, early 90s, and in Belfast in the late 90s. And Manchester at that time was where Acid House, Ecstasy, Rave Culture, a certain form of pop cultural revolution happened. You know, I, f I fell into it as an 18-year-old. I'd gone to clubs like the Hacienda before and seen the beginnings of House. And then I got a job at the bar when I was a student and on the cloakroom. So a lot of that was very first-hand, was seeing how pop culture still had a radical potential at its heart and could become front-page news every day and could compel the government to introduce criminal justice bills because people were dancing in fields and that you also saw a bit like how people spoke about punk that you that anyone could do it effectively that there was there was a vocabulary to production which could bring people together in from all kinds of different backgrounds and it was what again one of those moments when race and gender and sexuality kind of um imploded exploded came together anyway it wasn't a time of defined separation that that really was a great um influence on me and on the work that I wanted to make. And then I went to college in Belfast, which was a, which was a very different uh, landscape. That was one which was inherently divided at that time. The sectarian division of communities and the outsider's eye being the one that defined it, or the reporter, not as a native Northern Irish account in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. And one, it was oftentimes the spectacularization of a certain kind of politics which would appeal to reporters. Mm -hmm. And that interested me because I couldn't begin to account for it. I couldn't begin to work out how to address the questions which were compelling to me, which was that even though I saw pictures in the newspaper every day, there was an economy around those images and the images drew a certain line which was very male. Mm -hmm. It was very attracted to a kind of redneck, hard-lined, muscular mm. kind of iconography and one which would brook no compromise. And yet most of the people that I knew there, you know, couldn't decide a cup of tea or a cup of coffee half the time. Do you want a cup of tea? Yeah. Oh, no, I'll have a cup. Oh, no, maybe it will. It, you know, it didn't account for the tenderness and fragility and, mm. and beauty which I came across, which was very instructive for me as well, which was very inspiring. I worked at a collective art centre, basically, Catalyst Arts, which was a kind of cooperative that would put on shows of other people. And I did the MA there. And that was, you know, I suppose that balance of, in, of an interest in looking at um, politics from a kind of reverse angle or an obtuse angle. Yes. Um, and looking at the everyday as a way of thinking of how we invest in certain stereotypes and are compelled to within, within mass media. And also how pop culture is one of those spaces which translates 
in very contradictory, unexpected and illuminating ways. Both of those are still things I wrestle with mm -hmm. um, and still have an interest in both of them, yeah. Mm -hmm. It would seem that there have been some pivotal moments in your life uh, given the traveling that you've done, the, the kind of work that you have also uh, become involved with, which has also seemed to have affected the kind of work that you want to do and how you want to do it, engaging in this kind of social contract with the people who become part of the work. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those pivotal moments. So one of the ways in which I tried to think about Belfast was I went to Kosovo during the war there. The question there was, what is a photographer's eye? Because what we see is a benign image on the front page of the news or on the front page of a newspaper or um, on the television is often one which is eminently uh, constructed. And the figure of the reporter, of course, is one which is also charged. They're the, they're the cipher through which the narration of the situation is, um, is accounted or is, is spoken through. And often that's a position of, um, it's almost an erotic position at times. It's kind of like a panting, brave, mm -hmm. present narrator who's in touch with the real. And yet, of course, it's a construct, it's an artifice, yeah. which allows us into quite usually an orthodox position. And in Kosovo, that was the, the war was happening at that time. It was, in fact, it was during the war that I went to the refugee camps there. And that was very transformative for me to see how you could begin to reflect. I was sort of mm. a, a bit like um, Perseus with Medusa, that you have to look not directly at something, but through, at an angle, which mm -hmm. is also, um, there's an obtuse bounce to it, like snooker in a way. Right. That you don't approach things directly. And I always mm -hmm. wanted to make work that that my granny could understand, mm -hmm. didn't have to like it, <laughs> right? Didn't, right? But but that you wouldn't need a PhD. Right, to unpack to, it or get yeah, into it. Yeah. yeah, and yet within it, you could also have levels which, mm -hmm. would, which would be present and which would also play to the natural aptitude and intelligence mm. of people. Mm -hmm. And yet oftentimes I also think art spaces are places which keep people out and are, as a discipline, also unconsciously or consciously aims to keep people away. You know, it writes big didactic texts to tell you what to think. And oftentimes if you let people critique it in natural vigour, verve and poetic force, mm. they will. And the, the, those moments of engagement are truly forcefully... Well, for me, it was life-changing seeing, mm -hmm. you know, for me, the first time I went to museums and galleries mm. to see video work, it really spun my brain that that could be art. Who might have been a video artist at that time who you know, really influenced the scope of how we could, this medium really offered a lot of possibilities so I felt that way too about, you know, video art. It's like this, this brings so many things together. It brings definitely, you know, the camera, sort of photography and performance and installation, 
um, it's very powerful. Who might have been influential for you that way? Seeing things like uh, TV Party, Glenn O'Brien's TV Party, so things which were which were artists that used television, Chris Burden, Alex Bag, was a massive um, attraction for me. People that use the mechanics of another discipline in which to engage with a kind of friction between the possibilities of that. So Alex Bagg had a TV show on the Manhattan Neighbourhood Network channel, I think around two in the morning, once a week, and then made content for that. So it was to use a place outside of the museum, outside the gallery system, in which the work could be distributed, but to see the potentials also of of and the power of those disciplined spaces media yeah. and that so things like records and um radio or podcasts or mm-hmm. disco dance marathons karaoke machines all things which are overlooked largely or deemed silly or deemed low yeah. grade in a way yeah yeah so you you've you know explored you know these different things and you know, the world won't listen with the Smiths. Mm-hmm. They shoot horses, don't they, with the dance marathon, mm-hmm. where you really get people in to do something that puts them in a in a situation that is not necessarily always comfortable. Mm-hmm. So if they're singing a Smith song in karaoke, they're, you know, kind of really just showing you who they really are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very vulnerable position, sort of subject position. Same with these you know, teenage dancers and, mm-hmm. and they shoot horses where they've kind of entered into a contract with you to sort of dance until they drop, you know. How do you go about, I mean, it's so much part of the art of your work is gaining trust, establishing trust. How do you do that? Um, I hate cameras. <laughs> you know, I also understand the other position, which is that to give of yourself is a very um, treacherous act. And the best you can do sometimes is to is to misapprehend another person in the best way possible. You <laughs> never... Everyone knows with a picture, you often say, oh, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a very vivid philosophical conundrum. I look at myself and say, that's not me. That's not the idea of mm-hmm. who I think I am. And to... So I spend a long time on projects... Uh, and I usually move to the place where I'm working. So the last project I moved for a year to Manchester or back to Manchester. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In They Shoot Horses is an eight-hour disco dance marathon shot in Palestine in 2003, four maybe, yeah. which was during the second intifada. So right. it's a very, very heavy time. And it meant that a lot of the images produced about and around Palestine at that time were burning the American flag, throwing stones, hijab and kind of uh, headscarf. They were in some ways about being outside of Western civilization, the ground, earth, stones, throwing, you know, burning symbols of Western capitalism. And even though if you look at the shot, there's only three people in the shot and they've cropped it to make right. it, you know, it's, it's something which is produced for a camera. It's not that everybody the whole day are walking around burning American flags. It's something mm-hmm. which the camera attracts and the camera demands. Mm-hmm. So I realised that I didn't, I'd been to Palestine before 
I had spent a little bit of time in the in the camps there actually, and again I tried to find um, an oppositional dynamic. If I don't know if kids in Ramallah know Beyonce, mm-hmm. not that's a failure in me, but why don't I know that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why certain right. people at certain times placed outside of a common binding? If I don't know if they wear Nike shoes or if they like Boney M, why don't I know it? All of those things were true. Everybody loved Boney M. Of course. Yeah. And um, you know, so I set up an eight-hour playlist and people would... I paid everybody a daily wage by the hour right. to take part in a disco dance marathon. And in a way, it was about selecting people that would, in some ways complicate our notions of selection who's your Uh favourite and desire Uh I would like to be you even though this idea is um, problematic Mm. and desire itself is always problematic right when it plays out it's it's, uh, real time so it's eight hours seven hours actually one tape went missing (laughs) and it plays from Donna Summer Love Hangover through to Xanadu uh, Olivia Newton-John yeah. and ELO. So very um, disco. Mm-hmm. There's acid house, there's punk, there's mm. indie, there's all kinds of music in there. But but it, it was to also to have a flavour of the transcendence of disco and the fact that everybody has danced for eight hours. Your granny's done it with mm-hmm. a saucepan on her head. Everybody sometime <laughs> has got, you know, has gone to an all-night party. Yeah. It was to touch on the elements which we don't associate with populations, people, nationalities that live under the burden of documentary. Mm -hmm, So how is that mm -hmm. regime of documentary also one which is compellingly defined in its need to tell a truth? And when is a fiction or another shape like disco also offers another potential for us to understand connection? Right. Or gaps in knowledge. or So in some ways, that's what I mean about your granny understanding. You can go and watch a, a disco dance mar- marathon of young Palestinians or, and you mm-hmm. also feel something mm-hmm. around what the, what was driving the concept, I suppose, what was driving the piece. Let's talk then about uh, the work that we have here uh, in the Lofre exhibition, uh, Free Photo Lab. Mm-hmm. In a way... Uh, it was difficult to choose, you know, mm-hmm. or to to suggest a work that might be in, in this show because so much of your work would have, you know, also been amazingly uh, appropriate for uh, the question of exchange, gift, intimacy, connection. So, but Free Photo Lab works with slides mm-hmm. as well, which I was really drawn to. Perhaps... Um, you could talk a little bit about it. I mean, it, it ties again into everything you've said about um, sort of the power of photography and um, the power dynamics as well. And, mm-hmm. it, in, and it involves uh, um, a kind of contract with the, the subject. So, mm-hmm. yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Well, before I, I mean, I should first say it's a great honour to be in the show and to be also with many artists who, who were and still are incredibly important to me and that opened up new worlds of vision of what potentially you could make 
as an artist. You know, so people like Felix Gonzalez Torres and um, Mike Kelly and Emily Jassir, you know, that they're, they're all people that either I saw as a young art student or along the way were making similar kinds of work. When, you know, that you're in dialogue, even though you're in different places, you're seeing what somebody's doing. And those moments are stepped out of gallery structures, so not bringing the cinema into the gallery, not bringing the cinema into the museum, but people spending time making work in relation to communities and mm. um, groups and topics and themes. That was what drove me, and that's what those works are pretty much all about. Yeah record covers Mike Kelly or, right. you know, strings of lights across streets, mm -hmm. Felix Gonzalez Torres or billboards. All those things, you know, they spun my head around <laughs> 50 times when I thought about that's what you could also do. You could engage with public space and mm -hmm. touch people in or communicate with people in different ways. And, um, of course, the theatre of a photo lab is really important, that you all wear a white coat as if you're a doctor, you know, that the the um, processing happens in a back room, kind of mysterious, like a scientist. Mm -hmm. And this idea that what you've submitted, what you've given, because it's in a role of film, you don't know what's on it half the time or you don't remember. Right. Or it can be very intimate and secret that, what, that nobody sees it. And of course, all we did all day was go through everyone's photos and look at them. And because it was Belfast, there was an intimacy and a... You were looking at gangsters' weddings or people's holiday snaps or, right. you know, lots of different things which a photographer would never have access to unless the photographer was the person taking the picture. Exactly. That was one pole of this, that you saw pictures which were just, they looked like artworks. Mm -hmm. They looked, they went to spaces which were incredibly intimate and with a notion of trust or the necessity to document take this picture mm -hmm. of me now mm -hmm. and and looking at those pictures you may be too emotionally charged you might not be ready or prepared for it and what the 34th mm. photos of mm -hmm. you know because with with digital you construct a history by deleting it by saying right. that's not me that's not me i don't like i don't mm -hmm. click 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 and what's left becomes the memory and with 35 millimeter, you you had an economy with it because you couldn't take snaps all the time. So right. you, you were much more cautious with it. And then with the roll, you got them all mixed up and you didn't actually know what was on which. Right. So it might come back with something that you didn't want to see. Or the thing that you wanted to see may be mm. lost forever and foggy. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so, so this was, this I really understood, this idea that this declining mode of photography because digital was coming in yeah it fell off the inflation index which was the shopping basket where the, all the things that people buy on an everyday which would make up yeah the economic value of inflation and, and 35 mil fell off and i think the digital camera went in around that time as well and then it was the abu Ghraib soldiers soldiers coming back who would put the film in which was accounts of their mm. brutality abroad in iraq imagining no one would look at them. It was almost like a surprise when they ended up on the front page of the mm -hmm. Daily Mirror the next day. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me was how we 
our reception and understanding of the photo lab and the mechanics of it and its theatre and what that means. And I decided to make an offer, which would be a special offer, called Free Photo Lab, so anyone could understand it, printed on a kind of pizza flyer style. Right. You know, it would be put through people's doors. Yeah. You would go around blocks of flats. It was an insert in a free newspaper, mm -hmm. which would describe how you could, where you could drop off your roll of film. It would be processed and developed and returned to you. But terms and conditions apply, like always. Right. Any image could be scanned, basically, and exhibited right. or distributed or exploited, basically. So it's around, I mean, it's before um, Instagram and the internet and that <laughs> circulation of images which happens now. I think this, the, it might have been 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was still this idea that you didn't take a photo at a funeral. Right. That's changed. You didn't, you know, t taking a video at a birth was still re relatively new. And of course now there's very few places people don't take mm -hmm. photos. You know, it's, it's hunger, you know, it moves in packs, doesn't it? One camera comes out and oh, yes. all the cameras come out. Exactly. I mean, nothing it's wrong permission. with it, but it's, but it's a huge change. Yes. It's a huge shift because yes. it used to be something quite shameful. Right. Very discreet. Like, I'm sorry, I just need to. And because of the economy, you're also like, do I really need to take this photo? Am I going to do? Might I waste a photo on this? I'm moment? sorry, I need to. I mean, it's a perfect way of. <laughs> mm -hmm. of... So then, so the first time it was six weeks, maybe a couple of hundred rolls of film, each with 36 pictures. And then I think I could take maybe 80 from it. That was Milton Keynes in England, in the Midlands. Then I ran it in Belgrade, mm -hmm. Banja Luka in Bosnia, Eindhoven, yeah. and um, St. Gallen in Switzerland. in Switzerland. So quite different economic and social <laughs> spaces sure. as well and different yeah. logic of using the camera as well, of what it, what it might be used for. And those were then scanned and then I made slides, which was the way we used to always see a lecture, actually. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Students was with slideshows and also boring family next door neighbor. Yeah. That's the joke, isn't Would it? Would you Just like be... to come over and see the slides of our trip to Hawaii? It'll be really fun. And it's like, oh, how do I get out of this? I mean, in a way, I actually really enjoyed looking at other people's <laughs> vacation photos, but it was mostly the theater of it that I liked more than anything. It's yeah. like, this is, it's a whole, it's a whole, um, I mean, it's like a kind of performance that you're giving for people. And also you're, you're kind of, you're proud, but then there are also kinds of images that are just, you know, really hilarious, mm -hmm. but you know, someone's trying to really you know, be uh, be serious about their their sharing of these things with you. So there's a, a lot going on with. with but it's slides. quite didactic, isn't it? It's it's there's yeah. no way out of a slide presentation. <laughs> it's a bit kind of Uncle Derek showing you the Mallorca holiday, <laughs> and when will this be over? Because exactly. it is there's a scientist doctoral position. Exactly. Um, but the, I mean, for me, the great thing about the slide as well, on top of that, is is that also, so it's it's within that rubric or language or vocabulary of 
popular photography. Mm-hmm. But it's also not material in the image. It's light. Yeah. So yeah. also within seven seconds on Free Photo Lab, there's all these pictures from landscapes to heavy metal parties mm-hmm. to fights on the ground taken from a balcony to dogs on chains to a lot of them look like art photography or documentary photography from the last 50 years. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Philip Lorca de Corsia mm. or um, Richard Billingham, yes. Wolfgang Tillmans, you know, the list goes on. They, it's ordinary people who've taken photos unaware or with that unconscious also mind mm-hmm. and sometimes with better fit photos than art or documentary photography. They're, ver- they're very sweet and moving mm-hmm. and touch on the kind of register of intimacy which I don't get to see every day anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an ongoing project. You right. know, it's something which I would... You'd con- do again. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's something very... Um, special in that it's a declining form 35 mil is it still possible to develop 35 millimeter film i can't even think that it's sort of like they phased it out and you can basically have printouts of your digital files in kiosks and pharmacies but i don't even know if i could tell you in montreal where you can um develop 35 millimeter film so these these things they're imbued by their sort of technological disappearance. It's a a kind of exciting thing to see a project like this within our current context because we actually have to think about the tyranny or the the discipline, you know, of of that particular medium and uh, think about space and what it took up. You know, I think a lot about my parents, you know, photo collection, which documents my sister and our entire lives and what Mm. will we do with it one Mm. day. And yet they're so precious. Uh, I would have a really hard time getting rid of a photograph, especially if I had the negative, because then I'd have to get, if I really wanted to get rid of the photograph, I'd also have to get rid of the negative. Mm. And somehow that felt like a kind of uh, sacred threshold that one Mm -hmm. ought not to to cross. It's really violent, isn't it? Yeah, Ripping up a photo. Absolutely. Give that here, that's not me. Yeah. And that idea I mean, pleasantly violent as well. Do you, you know? It can be a, a kind of yeah. And yet the delete button never has the same kind of poetry. Maybe in a few years' time people <laughs> will look back on a delete button with the same kind of nostalgia. But mm. it's what ghosts lie within those um Decline in technologies, yeah. which what I suppose I'm attracted to, or the, or ones which are seen as um, ridiculous, or which are yeah. seen as silly, or which are overlooked, like shopping channels or right. karaoke, right. because the actual um, logic of the appeal of them, karaoke, is like that you can be that person mm-hmm. in front of other people. Or you can interpret that song not singing along with, but by but killing it, it yeah. and becoming it, you know. And that—that's for me. It's a very profound thing. It's and it it takes a certain form of bravery. Mm-hmm. How did you choose the images you wanted to use? Because mm. there were thousands. I I often thought about 
being the person, not looking at the picture, but what did the click effectively mean? What is the moment that mm. you record with a click? Because sometimes it's not obvious on the first look. And you look at the photo, it's like, what? <laughs> what was I doing? <laughs> Why would they do that? And sometimes, you know, there's pictures where it's obviously people, you know, people taking pictures of people asleep. And you know it's about marking a moment of something that's happened before. Mm -hmm. There's pictures of um, people waiting for the food at a funeral or a wedding and everyone's looking really knocked off <laughs> and starving <laughs> and there's not one plate down in front of anybody. And you know they're kind of marking time, they're trying to hurry something up by making a diversion and they're marking this moment where everybody's waiting somehow. Yeah, a lot of the time it's the mistake that's interesting or the moment when we turn back from the staged moment. Right. You know, yeah, that was, that would, but I, I literally would stay up night after night after night looking and like a kind of cheap detective trying to work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of put things together, like finding that, what was that? Well, you know moment. it with your own, when you've taken the picture yourself, of course you know why you took it, because yeah. it relates so exquisitely to your experience, what you did that day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to jog your memory, but largely you can figure out what the point was. Right. And when you're looking at other people's memories, yeah, it takes, um, it's not empathic either, because but it is stepping into another pair of shoes or a few pairs of shoes mm -hmm. at once and trying mm -hmm. on which, working out what the role of the camera right. was in that right. relationship. Yeah. Last question is around Lewis Hyde. Mm. And Lewis Hyde's uh, book, The Gift, mm. was very uh, resonant and helped me a lot um, think through um, theories around the gift and, and how this show works it kind of offered a kind of a logic um and you've read mm -hmm. you've read this book as well when did you read it and what kind of effect has it had on on your work as an artist and as a person in this world i think it was early 90s when i probably read it it was written 79 or yeah there was an 83 mm -hmm. publication of it and i think it was it was the kind of book maybe a bit like the betty blue poster and the yes, um, I see. Bob Marley po that students had at that time, uh -huh. you know. Wow. And I think that what is still incredibly relevant about the book is it explains a lot about gift economies, which make absolute sense to mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. That the gift does not operate in one avenue or direction. Right. The gift itself is kind of vibrating with different kinds of energies which we all understand mm -hmm. oh I've, you've given me a gift mm -hmm. shit i've not got you anything mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know or or checking the price on it or you know the price right. of it or i got them something for a tenner and they've got me yeah. something for a all of these things are bound into the gift anyway what the expectations are if you just put it on the bed but you won't know which one mm -hmm. mine right you know Where's the <laughs> affect or the resonance or the aura yes. of me within the gift? Yes. And <laughs> with Lewis Hyde, it's it's about this. I mean, I've heard you describe it already. The 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 circulation of the gift right. and and its kind of um, 
resonance as part of transaction, not the giver, not the recipient, yes. but, the, but this idea of the transaction. Right. This idea that um, yeah, the gift needs to circulate and in a circular motion in that it goes from one party to another, but then to another yet further removed. Mm-hmm. And so what occurs is that there is a, a kind of spirit of connection that evolves and the, and the gift, everyone's interested in the gift moving. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really important for us to maintain this sense of well-being and uh, respect for one another by keeping the gift moving. Mm-hmm. So we're all invested in that. This is like a paradigm shift, you know, to think about gift economy as a way of being and doing um, uh, so that we can do the thing that is connect, which is what I love about your work, which it, it brings us there, back there every time in different ways, in, in ways that, as you say, you know, through, through um, cultural phenomena that are often dismissed. And, uh, and it empow- it's empowering because we can say, yes, you know, the, the grandmother watching the shopping channel or, you know, the teenager at the disco um, are doing things, are engaged in cultural activities that, that are part of that culture of caring, you know, that are part of what we can do. You know, well, they can be. I mean, the, the thing is, with the shopping channel, if you change its premise and you're not selling jewelry, you can actually sell anything with it. Right. With a karaoke right. machine, you can you can you can play anything on it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be straight laced kind of AOR <laughs> American Idol style mm-hmm. songbook. Right. It can actually be anything. But the gift is also it doesn't need to necessarily be an object in this right. idea of. The transmission it can also be the affect of caring for instance you know that you exhibit care within these kind of economies and if you think of nurses or mm-hmm. um, doctors or mothers or parents or friends etc that's also about the circulation of absolutely of a, a kind of gift which is not necessarily an object but which yeah. is one which is expected to keep circulating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you don't just say thanks very much <laughs> I'll <laughs> I'll, t- I'll be on my way now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My granny used to do that. We used to always buy chocolates from a mum for a birthday. And we bought them understanding that she'd say, oh, no, I'm on a diet. You have them. Yeah. We'd go downstairs and then we'd eat the chocolates. <laughs> and then we'd buy them. My granny would come and stay and we'd say, granny, 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 we've got you, you know, your birthday present or your Christmas present or something. She'd say, great, I'll put it, she'd put it behind the couch. I'll take them home with me. And we would be <laughs> so... We'd be really startled because it didn't abide by the rules. And it was a brilliant interruption, mm. of course, of the rules mm-hmm. that, you, that she understood also yeah. what you wanted from that. <laughs> but for us to comprehend that the gift could stop and would not be recirculated, in effect, or the, a break and one that you couldn't both literally and figuratively digest. That's brilliant. Ah. <laughs> oh. Phil Collins, thank you very much. Total pleasure. Thank you very, very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Aura. This podcast was conceived by the Phi Foundation for Contemporary Art and produced and recorded at the Phi Centre in Montreal.